Good morning. Okay, that might be double mic to Let's try that. Good morning. Um, for those of you who I haven't met, or who don't know me, I'm Corby Shields, and I'm uh, an assistant pastor here at Rock Creek. And this was my first Sunday to preach, and I did just get here, so it is a little fast. But um, maybe you have an opportunity to see my wife. You'll see she was great with child. And so we were really trying to squeeze this in before uh, before the baby comes and, uh, and things get a bit more hectic for my family. So um, would you guys pray with me as we jump in this morning? Father, uh, we are dependent on you to reveal your word to us. This is your word, um, and you get to tell us what you mean and what you want us to know. And you get to uh, develop and, uh, and change and grow us. Um, we do not get to import our meaning into what you've said here. And in order to, to understand you accurately, we need you to open our eyes. We are blind people, and we need your help, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, there's a great quote by Winston Churchill. I read a biography of his recently about him, and it was hilarious. I was laughing out loud uh, at a lot of different places, so I highly recommend that just for its entertainment value. Um, but he says this, and Winston Churchill is apparently saying with some of his cronies, and, uh, and one of his political adversaries, Stafford Cripps, walked by. And, uh, and he turns to his, his buddies and he says, There, but for the grace of God, goes God. And I think it's an accurate, uh, it's an accurate statement, not only for Stafford Cripps, but for Winston Churchill, too, but, uh, but also for me. And I was reminded of this recently. I was, Rich and I were, um, were visiting another congregation uh, in Philadelphia. It was about a year and a half ago or two years ago. And, uh, and I happened to run across this lady who used to be a, um, one of those servant leaders in our youth ministry growing up. And her name was Joe. And immediately when I saw her, I felt this shame kind of trickle in and, and like these latent guilt uh, just kind of seep into me. And, uh, and I was so I was upset because when I had been a teenager in this youth ministry back in Franklin, Tennessee, in Christ Community Church, there uh, I, I was I was just not very kind to this to this woman. I wasn't respectful to her. Uh, I thought that I kind of ran the show, and she was just there to kind of legitimate legitimate uh, you know kind of my uh, my power and authority in that place. And this is as a teenager. And so I was chatting with her, hey, Joe, how are you doing? This is amazing that we're running across each other in Philadelphia and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and she brings up rather quickly in the conversation. Um, she says, well, you need to see that you're a little bit different because back when you were in, uh, in high school, I was always amazed that, you, that your head could fit through the door when you came to youth school. I said, thank you, Joe, I received that. That is painful. Uh, thank you, sir. May I have another? Uh, but, you know, I was, uh, yeah, I was and, and continue to be an arrogant man who thinks everything is about me and everybody else is there to legitimate my presence and, and to give me a reason for being there. Um, and so, uh, so it was accurate and painful. And, uh, and I thought that, uh, you know, I think that as I look back, I probably should have been smited a long time ago. Um, but our God, the God that we serve, is patient. And, and for whatever reason, he has decided that he loves the process of growth. Um, he, loves, he loves change. He loves uh, even so often slow change uh, by, by small degrees. 
baby steps, as Bob would say. Um, so this story is about uh, just just such a change in a, in a process. So um, so we'll, we'll do that because the story uh, that you see about the blind man in Bethsaida is is linked exactly to the, uh, the the teaching and the, and the outflow of the confession of Peter and the teaching of Jesus. And we'll see how that is as as we go. So so here comes uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking into this village. And people accost him, saying, you have to heal this blind man. And then we see Jesus respond immediately. He grabs the man by the hand, um, which is a tender gesture, even if he is just leading a blind man. But he grabs him by the hand and, and he leads him out of the village. And then, did you notice what he does next? It's a bit odd, right? He, he spits on the guy. He spits on him. I don't think they had mouthwash in the first century A.D., in the Middle East. I don't think that, that may not have been a terribly pleasant experience. Um, but he spits on him and he touches him. I think that we should stop just briefly, this is completely unrelated, but I love rabbit trails. That this is this is a, an image of Jesus that many of us would do well to meditate on. Um, that, that we, should, we can take this image of a spitting Jesus with saliva, with bad breath and dirty feet, uh, and, 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 and a Jesus who touches, and he's got to be close enough to spit on him, right? He's grabbing this blind man, holding him presumably in his hands, holding his face. And this is a Jesus that we need to know, because usually our Jesus is, is, uh, is big G God and little M man, and kind of mostly God, and he, and he really kind of knew what he was doing every moment, and kind of walked through life, almost like a robot, just doing what came next because he knew what to do and and and, uh, and then he kind of floated six inches off the ground so that nothing really affected him. He had so much faith and he knew the beginning from the end so, so his circumstances really didn't bother him because he knew that this is that's not the Jesus that we get pictured in our gospel. He is God and man. He is very earthy, gritty Jesus. He spits on this man. And then he asks him, this is really interesting, he says, can you see anything? And the man says, I see people, but they're like trees walking around. So he's got some, he's got sight restored, but it's not full. It's not sharp focus. It's partial. This is actually the only place that we see um, a, a, like a two-stage or a partial healing by Jesus. And I think we need to take note of that. And notice that this story comes right before Peter's confession for a reason. It's a mashup. And Jesus never does things simply to prove that he's God. Um, if we take all the stories in the gospel and just say, see, he, he calmed the waves, he healed the blind, he raised the, he raised the dead, uh, that proves that he's God. And it certainly does. But it does much more than that. And if we miss out on this mashup of this story coming together with this teaching, then we're going to miss a part of who Jesus is and what he wants us to know. You see, Jesus doesn't do magic tricks or illusions. Jesus is doing something thoughtful here and on purpose. Thanks. <laughs> so what do we see? What do we see happening here? We see um, a story. We see a healing that's partial and then full. And we see these disciples who all through the book of Mark 
are frankly the disciples are idiots. And Mark tells his story about Jesus in such a way as to highlight that. Yeah, Mark doesn't shy away from that, the fact that the disciples just don't get it. They don't know who Jesus is. They're kind of morons, and they say the wrong thing at the wrong time on a regular basis. And Mark highlights this throughout the book on purpose. In fact, the end of the book, if you read the last chapter of Mark, Mark 16, you'll see that the second half of the chapter has these brackets around it with a little footnote and made up at the top. This, this last section doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. And if you take that part out, um, and just read to the part that we're very certain was Mark, came from Mark's pen. And this is the last thing that you'll see in the book of Mark. Jesus is risen. He encounters uh, some of his followers in the garden. And, uh, and he says, you know, go back and tell everybody else. And this is how the book of Mark ends. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And this said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is a theme of Mark's book. The disciples don't get it. They're on a process. They're growing. It's a journey of understanding. It's a journey of courage. And um, and we see that played out in this story too. The point of the story is that Jesus gives eyes to see, but seemingly not all at once. Because we, uh, just like we don't come out of the room like a baby Hercules, who can, who can uh, you know, hurl uh, evil monsters into the abyss right from the, right from the angel of the time. We, we, we like that. Uh, you know, we, we don't have strength as children, and we don't have wisdom as followers of Jesus. We don't have insight. We're in a process of growth. And I, I think Jesus actually likes that, which is strange. In Australia, there are these huge tracts of land that, uh, that they're so large that they don't have fences. And they, you know, they, they graze their cattle on. They have to cattle have to go so far because it's a desert and they can only find these little scrub brushes to eat on. And so they have to go a long ways. They don't even have fences. It would be way too big to fence in. And they, they, but they have to kind of control their herd in some way. They have to have some kind of way to keep track of their herd. And they do it in one, they use this one method. They sink a well in the middle. It's a desert. Those animals have to come back to have to get sustenance at some time. They have to come back to get uh, to get water, and so that's the way they uh, they take they, they track the animals. Now, I think this is actually similar to the way Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples and leading them now. He is the well in the middle of the desert, and he's seemingly just fine if you're way out there or you're way close, as long as you're moving towards him. As long as you're moving towards him, Jesus is good with that. And he is patient with those who are far away. They're moving towards him. And he is patient with those who are near and think that they're better than those who are far away. You see, this view of Jesus, the Jesus who is okay with a partial confession, who's okay with partial um, and, and that continues on to fall and to grow. This view of Jesus really confronts the religious among us, doesn't it? It gets our face because religious people love to have the right answers. We love to think that we are acceptable to God because of our good theology. Because we know a lot of stuff about him. And we make fences around him. We put the wall in the middle and then we make fences around and we decide who's in and who's out, who's 
who's on this close to Jesus team, and who's kind of out there a little bit further. We put more concentric circles around, like uh, Presbyterians are probably really, really close. Uh, really cool Baptists to who are cool with drinking and stuff. They're almost as close as Presbyterians. They're probably not like that. You know, and we, and we do that. I mean, I, I'm not saying, but that's in my heart. Right? I do that to people. You don't know as much about Jesus as I do, so you're not quite as close. And I'm going to put up some fences so that I know who you are and who I am and where we all belong. Jesus isn't into that. Jesus does not need bouncers for Club Jesus. Jesus accepts the inaccurate, the incomplete, and the partial understanding of them. He doesn't turn them away because they see him as a true walking, and because we see him as a true walking. But if he is, if he is the God man, he's part of the Trinity, three and one, one and three, that's a mystery. Do you really think that we have it all tied up in some little confession? It's a great gift that the church has given us. They are not all right. It's just not, it's a mystery. And that's okay. Jesus accepts that. He's much more gracious about his identity with other people than we are. He welcomes the blind. Jesus is gracious and he loves us right where we are, but he never, never leaves us there. He seems to love something about the process of growth and change and dependence and patience. Because right after Peter's confession, Peter says, you're the Christ, and then immediately after, the text says this, and Jesus began to teach them what he was waiting on them to kind of understand that, and then he could jump off of there. You see, this portion, this portion where Jesus and Peter confesses on behalf of the rest of the disciples, you're, you're the Christ. And then Jesus can then jump off, and, and further after this point in the book of Mark, it's just like a downhill roll where Jesus is, is, is um, exposing more and more and more explicitly, like it says in our passage, he said this plainly. He's, he's being more and more explicit about who he is. And really, it probably culminates next week on Palm Sunday when he rides in as conquering king to the capital city and, and declaring who he is. I just you know why he got killed. So he's declaring more and more explicitly who he is. Jesus is good with process, but he also desires growth and accuracy and truth. He is all about the truth. And this confronts liberal, non-religious people who say it doesn't matter where you are. Either there is no law or there are multiple laws, and it doesn't matter which one you're close to. Jesus says that's not okay. That's not it. There is truth. There is accuracy. I am who matters, and I long for you to be near me, even when I'm patient with the process. He won't settle for half truths when it comes to knowing him. The religious want to make concentric circles of who's in and out, who's better and worse. The irreligious want to take away the fact that there is a well, and so that anyone anywhere is just fine. But Jesus gives us a third way that is gracious truth. Even while he is almost unbearably patient with where we are in our journey toward him, he does declare that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No offenses that keep people out, but you're also going to starve if you don't come to the well. I think this is part of what John means when he opens his gospel by declaring and, and describing Jesus 
as the one who is full of grace and truth. Jesus gives sight as a process. He's patient with our growth, and he longs for us to be near him. The other night, I was singing to my uh, to my son Barnes as he was going to bed. And if you ever encounter me in that circumstance or any other that I open my voice in song, you need to keep your distance. Um, I've actually been laughed out of multiple prison worship settings. And you think that it's not okay? It's that bad. Um, but I was seeing to have this song that I learned as a kid that says, "As the words, Jesus draws ever nearer." And, and I'll say, I said, Jesus draws. My son, my four-year-old son, Marge, stops me and says, Daddy, wait, Jesus draws us? Like with crayons? I said, no, Barnes. No, I can't explain it. Then we were using the same word with two very different meanings. And I think that's what's happening here with Peter. Peter confesses you're the Christ. And when he, when he says Christ, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew Lord, Messiah, um, which means you know, the anointed king, God's king. So Peter is saying that. We try to, oftentimes we look at Jesus and Peter saying, you are the Christ, and we forget that Peter's on a process of growth. Right? He hasn't seen the cross yet. He hasn't talked with Jesus um, post-resurrection. He doesn't know everything. So when Peter says Christ, it's not the high point of New Testament theology. Peter is saying, you're the king, and when he says that, in, in, the, in, the, in Jewish understanding at this time, when they talk about the Messiah, heavily loaded into Messiah, where, like, like boulders in a, in, a, in a backpack, is this job that the Messiah does. The Messiah, um, the Messiah will, cleanse, will cleanse the temple and restore right worship to God's people. The Messiah will defeat all of God's enemies and expel the pagans and Gentiles from God's holy land, and the Messiah will bring about justice on the earth so that everything is fair and right and good. So when Peter says that, he's saying, you've got a big job to do. You're a great political leader, and I'm along with you. I'm in, Jesus. I'm in. And so you can see when Jesus then immediately says, um, the Son of Man, which is equivalent to Messiah, it's Jesus' favorite way to describe himself. When he says the Son of Man, which is not just saying I'm a man versus Son of God, I'm deity. The Son of Man is this Messiah figure in the Old Testament. He says, he says the Son of Man must suffer. And, and Peter gets all backwards. Because it would be like if your principal came into your classroom, or if your principal walked in and said, you know, guys, I was here and we can do some work. I noticed that uh, one of you guys left your lunch in here probably for the last month in your cubby because it's moldy and it smells terrible and I'm going to go clean it out right now. I'm going to get the, the cloths and scrub it out and pull that moldy food out into my hands and dump it in the trash and there will be confusion among the students. You'll be confused because although he's the principal, he is cleaning out your cubby. Not because he's the principal. It's, it's a juxtaposition. It's a contrast of title activity. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He said, although I'm the Son of Man, right, glorious, powerful, ruler over all, although I'm the Son of Man, I will suffer and die. I must suffer and die. And that's why Peter, that's why he says it's a process. It's an incomplete. Peter says Christ, just in saying so, 
He's saying, I see you like a tree walking. I see you, Jesus, but you're not in sharp focus yet. And so Jesus says, I'm going to explain it. I'm going to expound it. I'm going to help you understand both in words and in actions. He says to him, a point of clarification, Peter, says that Peter rebukes him. And we see this part that looks really harsh from the point of Jesus. He looks at Peter, who will become you know, the, the rock of the new church. And he says to him, get behind me, Satan. And when he says that, he's not saying that, uh, that Peter is possessed by Satan, or that Peter is, uh, is inherently evil, um, but he's saying, Peter, you are acting like Satan. If you remember earlier in the book of Mark, Satan was present, right? Satan, uh, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and Satan tempts him. And his essential temptation is, you don't have to be a Messiah that suffers. You can be a conquering king Messiah who dominates the earth. And Peter is offering that same temptation to Jesus right now. He's offering the same thing. So, so Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You're, you're tempting me. He says it forcefully because it's a temptation. Because he doesn't want to bear his cross. Jesus doesn't want to suffer. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. You just pray there if there's any way for this to pass. He says that I am the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. And I must die. I listen to this podcast called Radio Lab. Um, which is great. It is um, this, uh, and I say this with all affection, this heavily liberal um, you know, news kind of storytelling program from NPR that I, I profoundly enjoy. Uh, I really recommend it. Um, but you have to know going in that, that they're going to hold some very different assumptions than many of us in here would hold. For instance, the, the first assumption is always, they always deal with this kind of like, Spirit of man, what is the essence of humanity is kind of a major question they ask over and over. And they do these news stories that kind of play it out. And one that I was listening to was about these two guys who, um, who, who are going on this over in their cross country bike trip. And they're very, very different. They're best friends, but they're very different. The one telling the story is one of these people who, um, who doesn't like to walk the boat. You know, when they encounter conflict with people, she thinks it's best if they're just nice to people. People will kind of respond and be nice back to them. And the, the best, the best thing to do is just, the best policy is to be patient and just wait and, and kind of kill them with kindness, you know. Uh, you get a lot more with sugar than vinegar or something like that, right? Um, and the other girl who's very different is very confrontational. She goes right after people and then when, when they aren't producing what she wants them to, she gets in the face and she confronts them. And the whole story kind of culminates. These girls, they start kind of squabbling on the way, even though they're best friends because they don't get it. And they're, 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 they're angry at each other for the different ways of handling things. And it, and it reaches this peak as they're uh, biking across the country and they stay in a hostel. And they run into they're staying in a hostel with this other young man and they're sitting talking you know, late into the night, and the young man starts saying things that troubled them a little bit, like, well, do you know that I prophesied the events of 9-11? Um, and then the one girl just, you know, the nice girl says, the quote-unquote nice girl says, um, no, I'm just, I'm going to let that one go. You know, I'm, we'll go to bed soon here. I will never see you again. It's okay. The man continues uh, to expound kind of his, his different gifts, and, and he was to insinuate that they trouble him sometime. Like the time 
that a woman on the street approached him and blacked out for a moment, woke up, and was holding a knife to her throat. And so, isn't that kind of weird? And the, and the girl, you know, the girl who's trying to kill him with kindness is kind of like, hmm. You know, not going to say anything, uh, just let's get through this. And the, and the confrontational girl says, listen, that is not okay. You almost killed a person. That's a bad thing, and you need to deal with it. You need to stop hiding behind um, these kind of quasi-spiritual explanations for your actions and start taking responsibility for them and, and get some help. Talk to somebody. This isn't good. And they get in this fight and start to escalate and get worse and worse and move all the nice, the quote-unquote nice girls shrinking further and further into her seat. Because she hates this. She hates conflict. Eventually, they fight it out. The two fight it out. The, the confrontational girl and the crazy guy. And, and he eventually, you know, they, they have this moment where, oh, you're right, I need help. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. And the, the, the narrator steps back into the story time and he says, isn't that great? Isn't that what people need? They need to just be confronted. Some of us are just too nice and too easygoing. And we need to confront people and tell them what's wrong with them. And the girl says, wait, but right after I got home from that, my roommates all sat me down. And they said, we think you have a problem with anger. We can't deal with you. You, know, we don't, we, you need to know this. And so I just left. I got out of there. I, I quit that roommate situation. I moved out. And you know, the narrator is kind of confused. So what you're saying is that this has cost you friendships? This is, and she said, yeah, I'm actually a very lonely person. And so the, the, the narrator starts to ask her, what do people need? To reach our potential, because remember his assumption is wrong. We're all really good. There's like this bad stuff that comes out every once in a while. What do people need to reach our potential? Do we need people who are kind and gentle? Do we let people walk all over? Do we need somebody who's going to confess us? But that's a miserable life. And I just, he says, what, what, what do we do? Pregnant silence. It's like an audio thing. So it's really dramatic. It's really good. They did it really well. And, uh, and, and, you know, they don't know, right? Listen, the Son of Man must suffer and die because we, as humans, need both. We need this gentle Jesus who is patient and long-suffering and bears with our process of growth and our misunderstanding and our blindness. But we also need Jesus who's going to say that so wrong, there's something so wrong with that, that blood must be shed. We need both. And on the cross, he unites those two together. He says the problem is so big that there's got to be a death. And I am so gentle and I love you so much, and I am so patient that I will die for you. He's simultaneously fair and forgiving. The Son of Man must be killed so that he can comfort and confront. And Jesus gives us this statement that is uh, difficult and probably very troubling. It makes sense when we see the suffering Messiah. He says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. Jesus' cross was unfair from a human standpoint. 
he was crucified, he was killed, though he had never done anything wrong, though he was exactly who he said he was, the king of the Jews and the king of all the world. He says to you, take up your cross, lay down your life. But Jesus' cross was unfair, and his death brought life for the world. We can expect the same thing when he says to take up your cross. We can expect the world to be unfair, but we can also expect that the Lord will bring life through our cross, through our death. I think a lot of times we want to see this passage and just say, oh, I know what that means. That means that I'm supposed to be evangelistic. And bearing my cross means when I tell people about Jesus, they're going to hate me. And that's awesome, because that's my cross. And you know what? That's good. We need, that's great. We need to do that. I don't want to downplay that. I also don't want to shrink this into something so small as a verbal witness to Jesus. It's so much larger than that. We can spend a long time talking about it, and it needs to be talked about. But what I want to say today is that, is that bearing your cross, it means living with Jesus as Lord in any fallen circumstance. Anything that the world throws at you that is bad and wrong and unfair and, 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 and sad, living in that circumstance, proclaiming and, and, and declaring that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the suffering Messiah. What does that mean? All of us have a difficult friend. All of us have one of those friends who is an absolute suck on us. It's okay to say, because we are experienced, and you know what? You're one of those to somebody else. So don't laugh too hard. We all have one of those who just watch from us, and they want to take, 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 and they want to call us all the time, and, and they always need reassurance, and they always need our resources or a ride or some kind of help, and we get so tired of them. And if we're left to be like those two girls, the confronter or the peacemaker, then we, those are our only two options. And we can say, we can either, uh, you know, Jesus isn't made, we need always are going to take one of those two, and we're going to be the confronter and say, listen, I'm tired of this, find another friend, I'm exhausted, I'm out of here. Or, we can be the type of friend who just takes it, and takes it, and takes it, and probably explodes one day, but who just bears with it and never confronts that, uh, what's wrong with that, never confronts and love uh, what, is, uh, what is sinful about what that, that friend is doing. You know, never brings anything hard or truthful to them. But because Jesus is the suffering Messiah, because he's the one who sacrificed and the one who rules, we can act in the same way because he's the one that comforts and confronts. So your cross is to lead into that relationship, both confronting, because the psalmist that's terribly uncomfortable, but also comforting, giving and sacrificing. That's when it becomes a cross to bear. Or, or, or a long sickness, or pain, or death. How do we live with that, with Jesus as the suffering Messiah? When does that, not, when does that become change from just something that's terrible that we hate into our cross. It becomes that because if it's just something terrible that we hate and Jesus isn't Lord, then you get to deal with it in whatever way you want. You can drown your sorrows in alcohol. 
You can, you can become a, a victim to, to pain pills. You can, uh, you can run away from You can do anything at your disposal to escape your discomfort. And if Jesus isn't Lord, that's totally fine. But if he is the, the Messiah who went to the cross and experienced excruciating pain for you, then your pain all of a sudden has dignity. Your pain all of a sudden unites you to him in a way you never thought possible. And you can use the, the methods that he has provided through doctors, um, through other health, um, through other comfort, while you're clinging to him. You go through it with him, not apart from him. Then it becomes a cross that you bear. Then it becomes laying down your life. Lastly, um, not giving your money. You can give your money because you really like to sit here and listen to Eric because he's entertaining. And he is. Um, but, this, but, but that's just paying for a service. Right? But it becomes bearing your cross when, when you give your, your resources to the church, money, time, energy, your talents, any of those things. It becomes bearing your cross when it starts to hurt. When you decide, I can't actually eat out this weekend because I've committed to give this money to God's work. Uh, I can't actually, I can't go on this trip this weekend because I've committed to uh, to be with a friend or to, or to in some way assist God's work in this world. It becomes a cross to bear. If Jesus' cross brought life, what did your money turn into? It's pretty exciting. It's going to hurt. It's going to be a cross. But it's going to be much more than that. It brings life to the world. Listen, if Jesus was tempted in that moment when Peter said, wait, 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 you don't have to do this death part. Just be the king who kicks butt. That's great. We can live with that, Jesus. And Jesus is so tempted towards that that he calls one of his closest friends, Satan, so in order to distance himself from that, do you think maybe that it's going to be difficult for you to bear your cross? Do you think that probably it's going to be a temptation to get out of the way of this cross that Jesus is giving you? I think it will. Two things about that. I've said it already, but his cross rescued the world from slavery and sin. What do you think your cross is going to do? You're joining him in that. He does it by the cross he gives you to bear. And secondly, it's going to be tempting to let go of that, to get out from it, to escape from it. But that's why he gives us each other. That's why he gives us the church, and we don't walk this road alone. And we encourage each other, and we gather here to worship and remember who we are and who he is. And he gives us this meal. Because you need it. You can't bear this cross unless you, you eat the meal of the cross. Pray with me. Father, you have provided for us. You are patient with us. You don't demand that we give it all right, all the time, right up front. You are patient with our growth. 
and you provide the means for our growth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, for this sacrament, this meal. When you draw us into your family, you remind us that we sit at the table with you and with each other. We pray that, um, that even as we take this, this bread and this fruit of the vine, we pray that we would be imbibing into ourselves Jesus. That he would be as real to us now as these, these elements are to our senses. And in doing so, would you change us, Lord? Don't leave us as you found us. Change us today. That we would bear our cross with you and for you, bringing life to the world. Amen.